So if, if a government comes in and steals from the farmers and takes their farm, it then disincentivizes that farmer and future farmers yeah, yeah. from owning their property, producing, yeah. and therefore disincentivizes production for the future. That hurts society. That hurts everybody. Okay, welcome back for another episode of the Post Money Plan Podcast. My name is Dallas Post, and I am your host for the show. My goal with the Post Money Plan is to liberate you from financial oppression and empower you to build selfless wealth. On the podcast, I explore all things personal finance, economics, and investing related. If you want to know more, you can find me at postmoneyplan.com or search the Post Money Plan in the iTunes podcast app or in Google Play. If you want to learn to save money without feeling like you're giving up your lifestyle and would benefit from a much more hands-on approach, you should sign up for my one-on-one financial coaching program at savepainfree.com. All right, on with the show. I'm here with Eric Benzenhofer. We are talking all things liberty today. Yeah. And pastries. And pastries. And pitchforks. Yes. Recently, there was a Supreme Court decision about another cake incident of someone not wanting to bake a cake for people based on their um, sexual preferences, and that went through the whole system and caused a kerfluffle and is now a ruling that seems somewhat in a different direction than things in the past, and so there's some debate on that. Do you want to comment on the situation at all? Yeah, first like to know that that there are some some good resources out there that both Dallas and I enjoyed. One was part of the problem with Dave Smith. He had a nice podcast on this. And also a guy named Matt Christensen who has a, a YouTube video, two two of them back to back. And they really break down this issue from both a rights perspective, what right does somebody have to discriminate against another human being, deny them service. And then also the practical aspect of it because if you don't really care about natural rights or you don't think there's any absolute truth, then practically how do these things how do these things work out? They cover a lot of that. So or did you did you want me to give just a rundown of what exactly happened? The, yeah, that's what I was referring to. Oh, okay. Missed that mark. <laughs> so so there was a couple. They wanted a cake for their wedding. It was a homosexual wedding, and the one who was making the cake said, I don't want to add to your celebration. I don't want to bake this this cake. And so some people said he was, the cake maker was just denying service, and that was his right. Other people are saying that, that because his cakes are artistic in nature, then that is actually an expression of his freedom of speech. So he was exercising that right. And it went all, it went all the way to Supreme Court. The, the couple sued, sued the baker, said, you, you have to bake us a cake. He said, I don't. They went, they went through courts and courts and finally got to the Supreme Court where they were faced with this, a good why in the road. You know, what do you really believe about liberty, Supreme Court? Do people have a right to their own services? Can you force people to work for you? And instead of making a decision on that, the Supreme Court did not. They made what's, I guess, called a narrow decision. The vote wasn't narrow. It was the, 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 the vote was seven to two in favor of the cake baker that said he was well, well within his rights to deny service and the state of Colorado was wrong to, uh, I guess, to prosecute him. And it kind of left people unsettled because like, what is it? a narrow decision means this decision applies narrowly to this particular case. 
but is not intended to be used for other cases. And I would call it punting in a way. Yeah. Obviously, like, at least in the social context of culture, people will look at these rulings and say, like, hey, what is the, what is the signal for us and mm-hmm. for culture and what we can expect for the future? I personally think, like, the whole situation is very inconsequential in just, like, the situation itself, but it signals to a much greater whole of rights and property and ownership and all those kind of things. And the reason why I think this is worth talking about is because when it comes to the economy and how it functions, these are, you know, building blocks to be thinking about on like how we form our economy and what rights people have and how people can participate in that economy, both as producers and consumers, and how that economy is going to function together as a whole as as everyone comes in to participate in the economy. So that, that's really what I want to be talking about is just where the the rights come in versus obligations, rights versus obligations, and the difference that plays out versus, you know, like in a, a truly free market system versus in a uh, mandated potentially communist system where you're not you're no longer having free choices in, in a lot of the uh, economic activities that you're undertaking, but rather having to do things because you're told I mean, I think we both really uh, think this is valuable or important is because of the prosperity which a system produces in the long run and what people are naturally entitled to in terms of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness slash property. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> pursuit of happiness, which a lot of people say derived from an earlier an earlier document which, which said property. That was a fancy way to say you have a right to your property. Yeah. But they definitely should have said property if they meant property. Not saying they didn't mean it, but that that was a mistake not to just put it in there. You know, it's funny. I've been I've been reading a book on the early writings of founding fathers of America that have been making me think about these kind of subjects and the principle of liberty that America was founded on. How important it was to a lot of early Americans to have liberty, and and what they believe that system would produce in the long run for its citizens as juxtaposed to a nation or a state in which its citizens were subjects of the, of the king or the land or the nobles or whoever and just what they believed that that system would produce in the long run it's interesting because they seem to have a lot of foresight as to what the future might look like in terms of that prosperity somehow they seem to have a vision of they were on the cusp of something major when they hmm. were establishing America. I don't know that they, like every time someone has a little battle and that they went overcome that they think, okay, like the world is going to change here. But in reading some of the writings of early founding fathers, they really seem to have a sense that something big was happening. Really? Yeah. That there was like a, a really big turning point like, or, or just like a new shift in society. Can you distinguish their thoughts there from, I, I kind of feel like that's a positive, not a positive, a constant of optimistic people. Like there's always somebody saying, boy, things are, things are going to get better. Change is right around the corner. I mean, I, I feel like, I don't know if all the politicians in my recent memory have kind of run on this platform that tomorrow is going to be a lot better than yesterday. Can you distinguish it from that, that general 
opium of the masses, hope and change and make America great again type of thinking. You cannot talk down hope. If you've seen Shawshank Redemption, it is what got Andy Dufresne (laughs) out of prison. So do not talk down hope. (laughs) But uh, just like reading a letter or actually a speech that was given by, um, I don't have the book to remember his name off the top of my head, but it was like 50 years after the revolution, they were just inaugurating a monument up in Boston. And he gives this long, long winded speech, very patriotic, talking about all the things that had occurred in just the 50 years since the revolution. But then that even a lot of the South American colonies were following suit on their lead and how they had set an example that was being followed suit in the rest of the world or in the colonized world anyway. Okay, so so that guy 50 years after the revolution is able to see from that starting point We've seen these big changes, not ho- not hope is on its way or change is coming, but change has already happened. Well, that- yeah, but also reading like some of George Washington's addresses and, and speeches and stuff, obviously like he didn't know. He was just as part of the revolution and the first president, but like he didn't know where we were going to be today. And, and I don't think he was just talking like hope for the, for the benefit of winning a vote or something. It seems to be that there was a sense of, something more than just ephemeral hope. There was some kind of sense that when they established America, because they were establishing it on these radical principles of freedom and liberty that had pretty much not been tested in other places, that they thought this was a, a model for prosperity that was going to outperform all other systems. Yeah, okay, so let me say two things on that, and which does tie into the cake-baking decision. Because as part of that issue is, is we're making decisions on how people do business. Because we think if we make this law and implement this law, this is the result that will happen. That's kind of a way of thinking. So two things in there. Just because somebody is kind of lost in hope of the future that they don't really know about, I wouldn't necessarily say that's intentional. There's a dynamic where people who can be forward thinking and think big picture and be optimistic can just naturally rise to the top, can become a general, can become president. And then they're up there speaking and you say like, well, what's what's to come? And they're thinking, this great things are coming. And maybe they're right, maybe they're not. But that's what has always worked. But it's also what they believe. So it's not really a lie. I think there's also politicians who have picked up on this and they're and they're just liars. That that's how they get elected. So that's one thing. Spoken like a true cynic. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. For sure. Uh the other thing would be if somebody is saying, look, we need to implement these principles of liberty because prosperity will come. And this kind of gets back into what we we're talking about with our other other podcast. I think it's a bad way to make policy because how do you know? How can you possibly understand all the variables that are that are going on in your country and other countries with all the different decisions people make and all the different differences in, within people? How can you possibly, as a politician, get up there and say, if we implement this policy, even if it's freedom and liberty, the things that I'm for, it will result in this future outcome? Those are the two parts of kind of what I'm saying because that applies to then – this baking thing is as we make the decision on should this man be forced to, to bake the cake? Should people be allowed to discriminate for any reason? 
it's their their business. They can make make the decision. I take the stance we should not make those decisions based upon what we think it'll it'll do for the future in terms of like outcomes, but rather all we know is the principles. So we should debate the principles and do what is right, not what we think will have a more prosperous outcome. Well, this is related to a previous podcast we talked about. I think that's what you're saying. Yeah. But uh, like, yeah, I mean, you could differentiate between the two points, like the moral component and the economic component. I agree. If there's a moral component where there's a right and wrong that could be clearly demarcated, then yes, like you have to stay within the right and, and stay out of the wrong. But I would say like if there's an ambiguous where it's amoral or you couldn't really define whether it was good or bad, then then you can move on to the economic component and say, what do we believe would be more prosperous or less prosperous and go for the more prosperous option? Yeah. But is it right? Should discrimination be allowed? Should that be legal? Or should we use the force of the government to oppose discrimination? So I'm very not PC in my opinions and views and stuff. Like I'm not for hatred and that kind of stuff. But at the same time, I am for allowing people free will. If it's not immediately harming someone or threatening someone's life to allow someone to ha- to make choices. Mm-hmm. So if, if someone doesn't want to make a cake for someone, then that's their choice. In fact, in the system that we're in, they stood to make money from selling them the cake. Correct. So it's a double like free will in the sense like they were going to benefit from selling that couple of cake, but they chose not to. So then what's the big deal? let everyone be yeah right and move on and they risk financial harm in saying no both with that one cake they were definitely going to lose that amount of money and they they could have lost money from negative publicity if it wasn't actually a free society but even in this our non-free society that not or not 100% free society we have now like they knew this they knew a storm was going was was on its way or maybe they didn't maybe this stuff happens all the time i mean i've I would imagine this stuff happens a lot more than ends up to the Supreme Court or even ends up into court because a lot of times in my my own personal life, if I'm wronged against and I feel like, boy, that was wrong. I, okay, I'll use an example. So in the tech community, I went to this event and all of a sudden I noticed I was like the only white person there and I was wearing a, a black shirt and I'm just, you know, I'm just networking. I was trying to get a job somewhere and I was like, so what's, what's, this, what's this event? It was like a long, long event. They said, this is the, the meeting for black programmers. And I said, does that include people with black shirts? Huh? And the person's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and organizations like that exist on campus this is all the time. And what they say is, yeah, this is the Society of Black Engineers or Society of Black Programs, but we don't discriminate against who comes. You, you can be part of it. I think even at Texas A&M, there was, there was like a white person who was in the leadership because I think for the most part, they weren't a discriminatory organization in the things that they did, but there was a discriminatory nature to, to that program. There were people who had, who had a passion. They saw a problem and it wasn't, there was not enough people with very dark brown skin who were in a specific role and they were going to form together and put in their time, talent and money into reversing that, that thing in the world that they saw was wrong. So discrimination does, exist there and I was at least I was I wasn't asked to leave 
but it's kind of, it's a pretty awkward situation, but I just, you know, I just left. I was like, I was like, okay, everybody here is not here to hire white people. That's I think illegal, but they're doing it. And I just got up and left. I, maybe I could have taken them to court. Maybe not. But, uh, all, all to say that this is not probably, this is probably not an isolated in- incident by a long shot. But, um, I'm just saying like my personal persuasion on it is like, let people have their groups if they want to have their groups and sell to who they want to sell. And in a free market system, then that balances out the morals and the economic benefit on both sides. Because if you allow people to discriminate and free will participate, or uh, what's the term? Free association? Yeah. Then if I have some moral reprehension to providing a service because of homosexuality or something, then, okay, I choose not to participate in that provision of services. And then me not providing that means I don't get that profit. And then if you reduce the supply of something okay, and the demand stays the same, the price will go up. Yeah. If the price goes up, then it incentivizes more supply. Right. So if there's someone who doesn't want to provide a cake and the people still want to buy a cake, then the other cake makers can either make more money from the cake right or it brings in new cake makers to bring the price back down they can bring a run an anti-discrimination special which economically they could charge more because now it's in the supplies choked my point is like in the long run the market would balance it out correct and it would just redistribute it so then the person who has a moral reprehension to a certain service or, or providing a certain service then just like takes a smaller piece of the pie yeah, or a smaller piece of the cake. Hey, zing. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it almost creates a demand for something you didn't even know existed because, you know, like let's say someone comes and they're, they're a homosexual couple and they just, and they, they storm into a bakery and they say, hey, are you going to refuse me service because of the type of wedding I'm going to have? And this baker was like, I, I, what? I didn't even know that was a thing. But after they explain the situation, this person discriminated against you, they wouldn't sell. And the, and this now baker number two is like, okay, I'll, I'll sell you the baker. And then once that transaction is done, maybe it's like a, a really expensive cake because it was like a fancy wedding or, or something. Now he's got this economic incentive to think, oh, maybe I need to put money into something I didn't know would add value to my business, which is a sign that says we do not discriminate. And so, so yeah, there could, there could be the, it could be that outcome if you, the market could push that outcome. But let's say Dallas, it doesn't. Let's say that the whole community bands together. Like there's a, there's a hardware store in rural Tennessee. Have you, did you see this? No. After that Supreme court case ruling came and it was narrow, but it was, I think the Supreme court people were even, the justices were even pretty clear that, that like this does not apply to everybody. And in fact, if there was, if this would have happened today in Colorado, the reversal would have happened. They made it clear that this was not a, a broad ruling but this guy went and put up a sign in his hardware store that, that, that said, we don't serve homosexuals in a, in a harsher way. He, he didn't get ostracized in his community. And when people blasted that story, they said, look, see, this is what happens when you don't take a stand against discrimination. It emboldens those Trump voters to, to do crazy stuff with their own hardware store. But what happened, and Matt Christensen did a, did a, a good piece on this, where he said, actually, it didn't. This guy has had this sign up for like three years. He, it kind of comes and goes. So it, it's not like this came about, this created something new. 
this has been there for three years. And so for three years, this community has known about a business that practices discrimination, but they have not stamped it out. So it could be that a homosexual couple in that community, because it's, it's a small town, could have to drive uh, like an extra 50 miles into, into the city to get their hardware. No economic, uh, what is it, instruments? Whatever the tools are, it didn't, the market didn't work in some part. This guy's still there. What if somebody had to drive an extra 50 miles and the economics didn't work as planned as you hoped? Would that be a reason to bring in a law to ban it if people could be without services? Because remember, this is hardware, this is nails and cakes, but what if it's hospitals? Yeah, I mean, I don't feel that it's right that you would obligate someone to do something against their morals. So regardless of the like economic content or situation. So to compel someone to do something or not do something, which is in direct contradiction to their moral convictions, mm -hmm. is a violation of their consent, their free will, their liberty, which, yeah, is not okay. So this is where I think the results-based kind of thinking is is we make policy because of how we hope it'll end up in, in the end. Or if we do policy A, good things will happen. If we do policy B, bad things will happen. Vote for A. In that case, I get the argument that says, well, if somebody owns a hospital and their beliefs say to discriminate against this, this group and that leads to their death, that's pretty problematic. So sh should somebody have, why should somebody be able to discriminate, even in that case to the point of death? where somebody's, you know, refused service to a hospital? Well, I did say if it doesn't come to physical harm or life. So in that example, yeah, that doesn't sound acceptable. <laughs> okay. Because you're causing someone loss of life. But uh, it's easier to think about as just like a small business. So if you're starting your own little small business and you're hiring your first person. Yeah. You probably want to be pretty discriminatory about who you hire, and you don't want it to just be anybody. I mean, if it's some big corp, like international conglomerate, at that point you're like, uh, like whatever. But you, your own small business, you're hiring your first person, which you're going to be spending like all your time with. Yes, you care very much like who that is. You want them to be qualified. You want that to get along with that person. So of course, people are going to discriminate. You're not living in a human world in reality if you think people don't discriminate to yeah. some to some extent. Even with our all the laws that we do have in America, you don't think companies discriminate against young people because they don't because they're young? Of course they do. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Or, you know, or any number or old people because they're old. <laughs> you know, like of course they do. You know, they're not going to say it because then they get in trouble. But that's it's reality. Sports is a fun place to look for, for discrimination. Just in these conversations we have where like, we're like, this is, it's so certain, it's so wrong to discriminate for age. They do it all the time. I mean, they, people get cut because they're old. They hire more people because they're young. There's teams like the New England Patriots who seem to intentionally discriminate against young people because they find that they're not mature enough. They don't have enough knowledge. And I, I feel like people give them a pass because they make so much money. And so somebody gets cut because they're old, like, ah, fine, they, they've already made a bunch of money. So, like, what if this couple was really rich? Would that change the situation? I think from from a sports fan perspective, I think, yeah, I think that's what we've 
that's the way we treat sports athletes. We don't we don't say that age discrimination. So maybe if this couple had enough money to order in a cake from any of the world, we'd have just said, ah, whatever. If you have enough money, then it does, then it's then it's okay. But just getting back to like your original line of thinking. Yeah. So I I think a lot of these results based arguments fall apart. Not in practice, not an example only, but I, I think a lot of the a lot of the results based way of thinking pales in comparison to taking a principled approach. I think it it, it doesn't serve us well because you don't know what impact all of your decisions will make. So I think we should focus instead on what we do know. So I've got some questions that I think could help you sort through not only this this cake debacle, but but ones in the future. So my my questions are who owns you? Who owns your property? Who owns your consent? Which is a big deal in the in this case. And then the the one that's I think is always ignored is when do we as a society use violence and force to solve a problem? Where do you want me to start? Let's start from the top. Who do you think owns you? So <laughs> I'm I'm going to be difficult and say I think God owns me. Mm-hmm. And in that sense I am not my own and therefore need to be acting not just on my own will but on God's will. Yeah. Then that means there may be some things where my will contradicts God's will and I have to concede my will to God's will. But maybe that's too... Why, why, it, why does God own you? I believe that in accepting Jesus as Savior, then I am bought with a price Okay, for my redemption. And in that sense, I become a slave or a servant to God because I've been bought. Okay. Then in that sense, I am to do my master's will and uh, then like my own will doesn't really matter anymore. My point is that in accepting him as savior, but also making him Lord, like when you say like you are my king, then I am ceding my will over to his will. Does God own atheists? Yes, but he allows them not to like in our American system, you know, we say we say that the government is by the people because we give the government the power. Yeah. Yeah. But the way things are now, it's like we couldn't take it back. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm saying in the spiritual context, God allows us to not give up the authority. So an atheist says, like, no, I uh, like I am my own master and that's it. God allows that person to act freely. Act freely, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think a little bit from the topic of of government and how we can live peacefully with everybody. Or I think that's a good should be a good role of government is is how can we maximize peace amongst people. Yeah, that's a principle that I think a lot of people can adhere to. Property rights derive from creation. So if you put in the effort, the labor to create something, then you have the right to do as you say with it, which is essentially what property rights are. In that sense, that's what I was kind of alluding to with like God owning or having the rights to what he wants with people. Okay, yeah, yeah. Which is kind of what that alludes to in the Declaration of Independence. But back to the more specific topic, if someone is saying, I choose not to provide a cake for these people, then they're making that choice. And so be it. In more recent history, 
we as a society have said that some of those discrimination rights are not okay because there was a lot of like segregation type discrimination that was in place back 50, 100 years ago. Yeah. And society has moved in such a way to, as to say that this was not okay and we need to safeguard against these kind of natural discriminations that are taking place mm-hmm. and compensate for them to make sure that things are more fair and level for all people. So I don't really have a good answer in in the sense that I do think people should have free will, but then like there is dangers that you can get a majority of people to gang up and do antisocial or harmful things to other people or a minority. Yeah, so maybe we can jump. We agree that the state doesn't own you. And therefore, they don't own your property, and therefore, they don't own your consent, your decision, your your ability to, to associate, all those decisions. Unless you belong to Mother Russia. <laughs> and I, I think that explains, we could agree on that, but I think that's, that's the, the root of the divide in the country, is there's a lot of people who believe that, no, 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 you are a product of this state. You are a product of this community. It takes a village to raise you. A lot of that, the famous stuff Obama was, was quoted on you didn't build that, you know, any business because there's a f- publicly funded road, that business belongs to the community because without that road, they couldn't have gotten their flour and their frosting to make the cake. So this is, this is the other way of thinking that the collective owns everything. And if they own you, cause you couldn't exist without them, then they own whatever you, they've innate that the state has enabled you to produce like your cake and your business. And therefore the decisions that you make with all those things, your body, your property, and your business, and your consent, well, that all belongs to the state anyway, because without it, we're just throwing arrows at each other. I think that that's kind of the other worldview. So maybe I'm going to throw a wrench in the momentum of where you're trying to go, but let me ask, what is the angle of how you like to establish your values and perception on different topics and to build up principles? Yeah. Because I'll give you mine. The angle that I like to take on any of these like economic principles for like building society and how society should be structured is incentives, incentives to produce outcomes. So in these kinds of questions, to me, it's a matter of what incentives are going to produce the desired outcomes and then try to work from there as to set up incentives in society to produce those desired outcomes. So for example, if we want society to produce lots and lots of cakes and for all the people to get the cakes, then we want to incentivize cake production. Mm -hmm. So then what system enables lots of cake production in a nutshell? Like that's why I believe in the free market because I believe the free market incentivizes lots of cake production. Yes. So I come from the angle of ownership because to incentivize, you know, like to subsidize, let's just say to you know, do something like to do those incentives, you have to own things. And if you don't own it, then you can't use that to incentivize. That's one part. To answer your, your question, I come from the angle of what's right. And then, I, and then I don't care about anything else. Slash, I don't think people know as much as they, they claim to. So I'm not as interested to, to know what, what, what the plan is, unless you own the stuff that you're using to implement the plan. 
I completely agree that property rights are a great motivator and incentive to produce certain outcomes. But that's kind of my point is that incentives is really you start with values. Values give you desired outcomes. Desired outcomes, you can then start to think about incentives. And then you put in place incentives from those desired outcomes that are coming from the values. Does so, that make you're, any sense? so you're saying the incentives that you want to implement come from a certain set of values. Yeah, they originate from values, yeah. Okay, I think my values prevent me from implementing a lot of incentives. Like the most simple one would be, I think you own you because God gave you life. The state doesn't own you, so you own your money. And since you own your money, the state can't take it to incentivize wheat production for the, the expansion of cake production, even if they really wanted to and thought that the key to life and happiness for all and all the different values that we want would come to fruition if people had more cakes. If they have to violate that initial value, then they can't run, run their program. But I assume you feel the same way. So maybe I should ask, what are your values? And what would be different that would, that would cause you to go down the road of, we got to start doing these, these incentives? So I would say that we very closely align, but I think I'm willing to concede rights more than you are. I believe that there's times when an individual conceding rights to the greater whole will benefit the whole more than if all the individuals hold on to all those rights and then fail to collaborate. Okay, I agree that, that there are times where that's, that's more beneficial to the whole. So should we use violence and force to make that happen? If we think there's, there's something that an individual should do, for the benefit of all, and, and that individual is like, nope, I ain't doing it. When should we use violence to punish them? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we can think right off the bat that if someone violates life itself, so for example, if someone murders someone, mm -hmm. then they've violated someone else's rights, but we as a society are probably, we're saying we expect, like we can't get that life back. No, no. But also may foreshadow something that they might do in the future, like they might take someone else's life. So society, we say, okay, we deem this person is potentially antisocial or dangerous to others. Okay. So then we're going to restrict them from life in some form or fashion, whether prison or capital punishment or whatever, so as to safeguard the rest of everyone else. Yeah. That is restricting their their original rights to a point where you say, like, they had free will and whatever, but then at a certain point... We as a collective say it's better for the whole that you don't you lose your rights. Yeah. There's some libertarians that would argue that the only appropriate punishment is ostracizing. Is to say, we all individually agree that you may no longer be on this property. And I think they would say for like any reason you have that right because it's your it's your property. That's how they would deal with with murders. But probably the more the more Christian angle is that there are core values like your, the right to life because life is precious because it's a gift from God, then if you, if you destroy that, then you've given up your rights that you have. But it does get real theocratic because my, my views on capital punishment come from, come from Scripture. It seems like at the beginning, God outlawed it, and then after we cleansed, cleansed the earth and brought in Noah, then he, he brought it back for capital punishment for murder. Well, on that note, I 
think a lot of government principles could actually be gleaned from the way that God had the Israelites set up. Oh, man, you trying to get you trying to get more listens here? You trying to, for people to share this with rage? <laughs> no, really. There's a lot of libertarian principles in there. If you think about how they were uh, set up to have no king, yeah, just like a system of judges, yeah, to have a ju- judicial system. But other than that, it was um, pretty libertarian. And they didn't even have a, a really a prison system, but they had they were supposed to designate sanctuary cities. Yeah, that cr- criminals would you know when you as a kid you would play like I'm on base and now then I get off base and then you can tag me. Yeah, that it was like that. It's like if you're a criminal, you can go to these sanctuary cities. And nobody's gonna harm you, but if you leave that, then the bounty hunters can come after you and like you're fair game. You're yeah. like to be toast. That's like a more open, free-range version of prison that doesn't include the welfare system that we then have to use tax dollars to pay for the criminals to support mm-hmm. them. Yeah. So I think that's a great example of a principle that's way better for dealing with criminals. But more generally, just what I'm alluding to is like a system that was set up that we could learn from. I want to get, can I get back to what you're saying though? So you're saying there's a core set of values and we as a society can violate those. You have values and out of the values come rights and rights can be violated if the incentives, if it incentivizes something that is in line with values or are rights in your mind kind of synonymous with the values, like a right to life, right to property. The way I view things is that right and wrong, all values are derived from an anchor point, the anchor point being God. So then all values are derived from God's will, God's desires, God's character. I believe that God has good intent for humanity and wants humanity to prosper. And some of the values and commandments and things that have been conveyed by God to society Mm -hmm. have been simply for the benefit of humanity. If it's going to be detrimental for society as a whole, for people to be running around killing each other and stealing from each other, taking each other's wives, doing all those kind of things. So if you set boundaries, which is restricting free will, but you set boundaries on those things because it's actually going to be for the benefit of the whole. If a kid, a three-year-old, your, your, your son, wants to run around and stick everything in his mouth and run out into the road, and you say, okay, you can play in the yard, but you're not allowed... You are not allowed to go outside the yard and onto the road. Yeah. I've restricted my son's free will, but that is for their benefit and for the benefit of the whole. Kids are tough. I was just having a conversation with my friend. He said, one of my controversial views is I I don't think kids have rights (laughs) because I own them. I own my kids. And as you talk about that from a libertarian, there there is an interesting discussion there. So as an example, because you said we should restrict people's rights because you you won't you know you can't kill people you can't steal from people but i don't think most people would consider those rights derived from what is true like you don't having a right to your property means that theft is wrong theft is wrong because that property belongs to somebody else so nobody has the freedom to steal in fact it's the opposite you know what i mean so it's not a restriction of somebody's rights to tell them you can't steal does that make sense i hear you but i i would 
argue to differ. Like full freedom would be literally like you do whatever you want, whatever you feel like. Correct. Correct. So this is not full freedom. I don't think any libertarian really believes in full freedom. They believe in natural rights that brings an order to society. That living amongst one another means that you recognize that you are valuable, that you own yourself, you own your property, and you you have to recognize that if you, as you want those things for you, you have to respect that from, from everybody else. Yeah, uh, I, I agree with that. Like I said, my, my perspective on it is just that in God's wisdom and in the wisdom that we can see looking back on the history of humanity yeah. is that if you allow people to steal, for example, then it can dis- – well, example, okay, case in point, systems where a communist government stole from its citizens. Yeah. So if, if a government comes in and steals from the farmers and takes their farm, it then disincentivizes future fa- that farmer and future farmers yeah, yeah. from owning their property, producing, yeah. and therefore disincentivizes production for the future. That hurts society. That hurts everybody. So in God's wisdom, he knows that if people are stealing, then people are disincentivizing from owning things. And the incentive of owning things is, is safeguarding it and trying to make it better. Mm-hmm. So stealing is bad. Dallas, did you just get on the taxation is theft bandwagon? <laughs> I feel like you just did. Theft of any kind. Let me not be combative because I think there's a point. Let me see if I understand what you're saying is, is libertarians would say, the communist stealing from people is the same exact thing as any taxation. It just looks worse, but it's the same thing. But if I'm understanding what you're saying is that it depends if there's a greater value in mind. Like if you can tax people, but if you can do that, if you can violate property rights, take money from the collective, but in the end, it helps the poor. It helps the widows. It helps the orphans, which is a value that we know is valuable because God says so. If it can incentivize that good thing, it's worth it, and we should do it. Is that correct? Like the difference you're saying is that there's a line there, and it's drawn by va- by what we value. Well, uh, I don't have this as clear thought out in my mind, but I definitely think that individuals of their own free will should be contributing to others to like help them out in ways that they aren't going to see a return helping out the poor or whatever, like out of their free will. Yeah. But then when it comes to a collective and an obligation, so the government and tax, Yeah. I don't know about that one. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, my default in terms of deferring to right and wrong is like trying to interpret the Bible. And so God did set Israel up to have a tithe for them to support the priesthood and all the religious ceremony and temple and and that kind of stuff, which was an obligation, not a choice. What I'm hearing you say, and I I agree with you, and this this, this would probably put me at odds with a lot of libertarians, is is I do trust the Bible more than I trust the wisdom of men. So that's why I believe in, if, if, if there's this clean logic, libertarian logic of why capital punishment shouldn't be allowed, I'm still going to go back to what God told Noah because I trust I trust the Bible more than I, than I trust my easily deceivable self and everybody else who is easily deceivable. Yeah, um, no, I, I definitely have the same persuasion. I was actually thinking of this today. I was thinking about in religious schools, there's just like debates on like how you should be interpreting scripture. Some people defer to 
certain things over others. But in terms of my hierarchy, I think people rely too heavily on logic in interpreting scripture as mm -hmm. opposed to scripture interpreting itself and history or evidence. Okay. Like in terms of setting up a logical, a logical well, structure? I mean, so we're talking about like coming up with libertarians coming up with principles for like Y, X, Y, or Z. Yeah. Or an atheist coming up with a, like some kind of logic reason as to why God can't exist because if he did, he wouldn't be fair. Like he's, he's not yeah. fair. That logic is inferior, just whether it's like reasonable or flawed, to yeah. history or evidence. And then that is inferior to scripture itself. Well, Dallas, I think it's a good time to turn to wrapping this up. It might feel jarring because we lost 30 minutes of audio. <laughs> but here we well, are. I, I said all the best things. Then. <laughs> I know. You can just trust that. I, I agree. We lost the best part of that by far. <laughs> uh, all right. So, so Dallas just asked me to wrap it up. So I'll wrap, I'll wrap it up saying we should be thinking about these things more from a principled level. Because if not, whenever we stop thinking, that's when wars start. That's when violence happens. In order to maintain peace, we've got to be talking. And I think what would maintain the most peace, this is kind of your, your way of thinking, would be the best result, I think, comes from rights-based thinking. And whether it's cake, discrimination, taxation, we should discuss these things and not just be swayed by how we uh, feel about the outcome yeah principles over emotions are, are probably gonna be better most of the time i mean if you think about your personal relationships if you operate on principles over just like reactionary emotions things usually go better yeah so yeah definitely think that's how we should be thinking about things all right well that's a wrap for this episode and catch us next time on another episode of the post money plan podcast <laughs>